Hello everyone and welcome. This is episode number three, our Waco recap show of our new Resistance Discs podcast. I'm Scott Withers and I'm here with Jeff Corns. After a long drive back from Texas, we are back in Oregon, worked on a bunch of stuff yesterday, and we are recording this podcast on Friday, March 18th. So Jeff, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Feeling a little more rejuvenated after a long three-day drive back from Waco to Oregon and ready to get back to normal day-to-day operations. Yeah, and some crazy day-to-day operations it's going to be. We have a lot of new drops coming out, including today, if you're listening to this on Friday, because I'm going to get it out as quick as possible, a ton of 2022 Tour Series discs that nobody else has right now. So I know we took all day yesterday getting those inventoried and numbered and ready to go up on the website, and they are dropping at 4 p.m. Pacific time tonight. And then next week, we are going to do another pretty special drop. I'll let Jeff elaborate on that if he wants, or we can keep it a secret for a couple days. But No, let's give a little early insight to some of the podcast listeners. We got a awesome restock of the Glow Z Scott Weathers Scorches coming next Friday. So that'll be pretty sweet. We also got some DGA Tour Series that's going to go live probably early next week on the site as well. So lots of cool plastic coming up. So definitely keep an eye on that. We were walking around our Resistance Warehouse yesterday and both kind of noting that we've never had so many discs in the warehouse. And it's not from lack of being able to sell them. It's from the fact that companies seem to uh, finally be able to like get product in the hands. Again, I know Discraft has done a huge push to ramp up production and we are super excited to have all of that stuff brand new sitting in the warehouse ready to get out to customers and then maybe you know as we go we might be uh, looking at a little storefront for people to come in person and check some sweet stuff out but that opening date is kind of still to be determined but be a really sweet thing for anyone that lives in Oregon to come by and pick out some limited edition stuff some fun Discraft things that haven't necessarily been released to other people and are not going to go on the website, so it'll give incentive eventually when we get everything set up for people maybe to be able to swing by the warehouse and get some real goodies. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely know there's quite a few things we got coming. There's some like smaller, not only smaller runs, but we have some transitional colors of, for example, those scorches that not enough to go around on the website, but they're going to be sitting in the retail storefront eventually, so... You're definitely going to want to stop by for those misprints, LE, Discraft stuff. It's it's going to be cool. It'll be worth the trip if you come by, I guarantee it. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's jump right into this past week. We were in Waco, Texas, and then you were in the, at the Memorial the week before, and we haven't done a podcast since then. So after Waco, if you want to touch on Memorial a little bit, I don't have a ton of knowledge of it. I wasn't there, but you were. Um Let's jump into the big one. Elite Series event number two on the PDGA uh, 2022 schedule. Waco is one hell of a course and a whole lot of fun. But, man, it was kind of crazy this year. Yeah, the course is always challenging just the way it sets itself up. But conditions definitely increased that difficulty this year. I mean, the first day there was consistent, like, 30-mile-per-hour winds with gusts even up faster than that. Um, And with that a nice 35 degrees or so in the middle of the afternoon, which brought the wind chill down to mid twenties. So I, I, I talked about it with a lot of the other pros and we are trying to really think what's the worst round on tour at an event that we could remember. And everyone was kind of looking back at the 2019 masters cup during round two, where it absolutely just dumped rain. Um, 
and that was, you know, this was up there as one of the most just demanding rounds condition wise in like almost three years. <laughs> I Masters Cup 2019 was brutal. I think that was round two, and we just got completely dumped on the whole time. And I remember being down there and being like three holes in, and it didn't matter how many towels you had, they were all gone. Like, yeah, it was just pointless. Umbrella didn't matter. No, nope. it just good luck. Just hold on to the disc the best you can and see where it goes. Like Dale has known for its like dry ground, hard pan, like surfaces on the green. Uh, good luck. There's just rivers running through the fairways at that point. Yep. But the wind and the cold factor at Waco, like cold's manageable because we play in cold weather all the time in Oregon. But when there's just wind ripping at like 30 miles per hour, and unless you have like a good like windbreaker kind of jacket, it's just ripping through you. Like there's you have nothing on. There's hard to battle those kind of conditions. No, it was brutal, and scores reflected that. We did have some good round ones turned in for sure. And we can highlight those real quick. Um, Paul McBeth, Luke Humphrey, and our good buddy Nick Carl all got in at 8-under par and were tied for the lead. 8-under par being a 10.75 rated round. Like, that. I mean, that's crazy. And then I was looking at, like, my score got in at 1-under par, kind of like the rest of the whole field. We were all pretty jammed up. It was 10.30. And it just speaks to how brutal those conditions were. And usually the tough part in Waco is the woods because they're super tight. They're incredibly punishing if you get off the paths. Not on that day. It was like everyone came out of the woods under par or, you know, as much as you could. And then the last or four of the last five holes played dead into a headwind. Yeah, those last couple holes were just absolutely exposed in the open. And like you said, we're we're dealing with thirty mile per hour winds. Some of those holes before were considered tweener holes, so they you know adjusted the par to the lower side after a perfect round was shot out there by none other than Paul McBeth. But you know when you're playing a hole that's what is hole fourteen? It's like or no, sorry, not fourteen, fifteen. 15. It's like four hundred and eighty feet. It's listed. At least. It's listed at five fifty eight. Okay, <laughs> way longer than I even thought. But people always talk about, oh, there's so many eagles on that hole. It can't be a par four. Like, it's got to be a par three. All right, well, go play that hole in a 40-mile-per-hour headwind and see what you do. I The hole averaged, I think, 4.5-plus the first day. Mm-hmm. Like, it averaged a stro- over half a stroke over what would have been a par four. Um, you know, it was incredibly hard. And even the next hole after that, considered one of the easiest par fours because people throw rollers or even huge air shots down to the green. That hole was incredibly difficult to get yeah. as a birdie. Surprisingly, hole 16 did still average under par. I guess I'm only surprised because the hole 610 feet, but when we got up there, I don't think you could throw your drive more than like 380. I don't, I mean, no, maybe there's the, like, yeah. there's tree. Yeah. It's wide open field until like a little scattering of trees and most people weren't even getting to the first tree where normally people are getting like 150 plus past that tree yeah. in good conditions. Yeah. It was just so, incredibly challenging coming down the stretch. And then you have to play 17 and 18. If you haven't watched the Waco coverage, you should absolutely do it because I think it's a great watch. I think the course videotapes really well, especially the open holes. Hole 17 averaged. This is downwind when we got to 17. 
still averaged four tenths of a stroke over par. Um, we watched um, backhand mid ranges go out of bounds long because yeah yeah Colton threw a mid out of bounds long, which has to be four hundred feet, four hundred and twenty feet or something to the landing area because the wind was blowing so hard, and that's what he chose to go with. I I throw forehand off that tee as I would say like. 75% of players that have both the forehand and backhand will choose the forehand to get it in play. And then the second shot is super demanding with woods on the right and water 20 feet from the basket and just extending back the whole way to where you're shooting. Incredibly hard hole, average four-tenths of a stroke over par. And then hole 18 is 468 feet where you ha- if you want the birdie, you basically have to carry it like, I don't know, 430 over water and if you're going yeah. straight at the basket you better be carrying at 450 or 460 over water um with a straight tailwind it's still averaged eight tenths of a stroke over par so you in your last four holes you had a hole averaging 1.5 over par one averaging just below par one averaging half a stroke over par and then one averaging eight tenths of a stroke over par so it was the theme around one was get all the birdies you can which is still hard because it's waco and then hold on for dear life. I know I came out of the woods at four under par and thankfully snuck a birdie out on hole 17 to get back to one under after I doubled 13 and doubled, um, 15. Yeah. Um, I mean, lots of, I know that, uh, Nick Carl, we saw him, he teed up early in the morning, but normally people joke about, Oh, you got to tee up early in the morning. The conditions weren't as bad. No way. I drove by the course in the morning. It was ripping windy then. I watched the FBO uh, played in the morning this year struggle with the late part of the round. So you can't really argue the conditions were more favorable for some people than others. Um, Nick Carl was having a super clean round and, you know, found the danger on 15, found danger on 17, or uh, and then I think 18 as well. Cleaned up the par on 18, or 17, I believe, but bogeyed 15 and uh, 18. So, like you said, you've got to get those birdies. You needed them early, and then you had to protect them for the entire round. Yeah, and but huge props to Nick. I think he said that was his highest rated round by, like, 20 points. Um, that So, and we were staying with him, and he was obviously super excited, as he should have been. So, big shout-out to him. I know the rest of the tournament didn't necessarily go how he would have liked after being on the Jomez lead card through round one. But round two was a totally different day. We went in, had pretty calm conditions, and the scores reflected that. And you started to see some separation on the scoreboard. After round two, uh, Macbeth was at 17 under par. Luke Humphreys at 16 after back-to-back eight under. So really hot two rounds for Luke. And then Chris Dickerson shot 11 under to jump up to 15. And that was kind of the separation. Everyone else was at 11 or worse. But it was scorable on that second day, and it was fun, and it was like the Waco course that you want to play. Um, and and scores reflected that a little bit. But you still saw really, really good players struggling, which we'll get to here in just a minute. Yeah, conditions like played a factor like throughout the entire weekend. Um, obviously, like we said, much more scorable. Um, you know, players from all sorts of uh, – from all levels – we're putting in the good scores round two. Like we saw our buddy Ben Calloway. Uh, I think he started off 10 down through 12, got to like 12 through 16, had a rough finishing final two holes, but, you know, put together a huge round to sit gum from one over all the way back to nine under. Yeah. Um, 
So completely different kind of playing conditions, which, you know, does for you as a pro, does that change your game plan? Are you looking to attack more? Are you looking to just kind of stick to your game plan, but just execute better? Like what's your decision making on the course when it, you know, go from just awful conditions to the best conditions the most ideal conditions you can get. Yeah, I think you feel dumb if you don't take advantage of them, uh, especially when we knew that scores were better. We knew that they were going to be better. I don't know if my mindset changes a ton in the woods out there because, let's be honest, the woods are so thick that the wind doesn't really affect them too much. But then, once we got back out to 13, my mindset is like, okay, we've got to go attack every one of these holes right now. Like, there's no more laying up the wind was I don't want to say completely dead but it was 15 miles an hour or less on all the shots um, and even even maybe a little less than that on some of them watching Ben's round or looking at Ben's scorecard it was like he went birdie 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 par par and then had six in a row and then par birdie birdie par birdied 16 and then goes double single and still puts up a 1055 round like we knew that it was out there and like I mean Ben's first round was one over par so he had to go out and be aggressive and there's two things that can happen well I'd say there's three things that can happen because we saw what happened in the last round when I tried to get aggressive you can do it and do what Ben did and light it up you can go for everything and um, not I guess I'll, I'll say do what Ben did in the third round which is go the other direction or you can do what my third round kind of looked like when I was trying to be aggressive, and that was make nine or ten birdies, but then also have seven or eight bogey strokes or whatever it was to go along with it and just shoot a couple under par. Um, for most players, when you try to get crazy aggressive out here, if it's good conditions, yeah, you can light it up, but I would say the other two options are a little more likely. This is a course you've got to play placement golf. Smashing shots doesn't really help. So being aggressive is one thing, but being smart and aggressive is another. I don't feel like this is even well, you get a good day in Vegas and you know, it's like foot to the gas pedal and you've got to try to crush every shot. And it really does help to push in another 50 feet up the fairway. So you can have a fairway or a mid into the par force at this course. My landing areas are the same, no matter what the conditions are outside of like hole 15 through 18, I would say. Yeah, I feel you on that. Um, but let's get on to round three. Yep. A lot of, I mean, a lot of drama in the essence of it was a close finish. Um, exciting action all the way around. Um, you want to start us off with a little recap of that round for our leaders? Yeah. I mean, we watched coverage late. Obviously, we're on the course, so we don't get to see exactly what's happening. But hole one changed from playing downwind or with no wind, where I'm throwing a zone forehand off the tee, or you could throw a spike hyzer. To a 25-mile-an-hour headwind, Macbeth hits a nasty par putt after going out of bounds from about 50 feet, and then Luke, who is the closest one to him, takes a five immediately. And then Paul has a couple strokes, and we know what happens when you give Paul a couple strokes. He gets comfortable and goes ahead and runs away with some things. Um, But it looked like from just watching on video and everything, Paul goes par, 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 but then rattles off seven birdies in a row, and at that point, you're thinking it's over because like there's not that many holes left. He can birdie almost everything. You know, 12 is obviously really hard, but 15 was playing downwind. So not only is it birdieable with a 20 mile an hour tailwind, 
if you want to go for it. It's also a much easier three to just pitch a forehand in the middle and then be able to throw an upshot. And then 17 and 18 were playing dead into the wind, but you were kind of assuming after looking at Paul's front nine that he was going to have enough strokes to kind of coast in. He did separate a little bit. Luke Humphreys right at the ship and was three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine under par from holes three through 17, which was huge. Like that's, that's great, especially into the wind. Although with the wind switching directions, well, we talked about that super hard stretch of 13 through 18 being on day one. Now those were playing into a ripping tailwind. Um, so 13 was easier. 14 was definitely easier. 15 was a much easier hole. 16 was almost an automatic birdie at 609 feet with that crazy tailwind. And then 17, always hard, no matter what the wind, but with that headwind on 17's tee shot, it becomes a lot harder to get into a good spot. And then 18 might be the hardest part three in the world when it's the wind's blowing like that. We were standing over what was my third shot because I threw my second in the water, just trying to figure out, or threw my first in the water, trying to figure out how in the world from 120 feet to get it within 30 feet of the basket. Um, so we know that hole is playing yeah. tough. But, yeah, I mean, a little separation at the top with Macbeth ending up winning by three. Um, Luke, killer stretch from hole three to 17, though, to secure second place and uh, move into first place in the Pro Tour standings through two events. Yeah, Luke's off to a really hot start. We kind of touched on him last uh, podcast talking about Vegas. He had a top five finish in Vegas, and, you know, at the time, that was his best of his career. And he followed that up at the next Elite Series event with a second-place finish. So, you know, Luke's on the right kind of golf right now. He's in his swing, and, you know, we'll see if he can keep hanging in this top little bit and how his season kind of finishes out. You know, he's put himself in a great position already with, I think he's got like 160-something points, uh, Pro Tour points, uh, to make the finale. But, you know, he set himself up good early, and... I'm proud of him. It's great to see, you know, more players coming up and playing at that elite level. Yeah. This course is hard, right? We see every year this course take some real good players and do real crazy things to them. The notable list of players that didn't cash this weekend, the ones that I wrote down, Jeremy Colling, Simon Lazat, after I think being on chase card, Ben Calloway after his crazy good second round, Kind of had one that he'd like to forget in the third. Defending champion Colton Montgomery doesn't cash. Uh, Corey Ellis, Adam Hammes struggled. Even you know we're staying with Adam, obviously. Ezra and then Yuli. I mean, guys that honestly weren't that close to the cash line, and it was kind of brutal. But that's the woods at Waco, and if you're off and you're getting in some bad spots, those bogeys rack up real quick. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen this not just this year with an elevated field from, you know, everyone just playing at a higher level, but even last year, I think Ricky was in danger of missing the cash. Eagle was in danger of missing the cash. Um, I can't remember if Ricky ended up sneaking back into it. Eagle was like on the cash line, and Ricky might have like missed the cash by a stroke or two, but like this course challenges the best of players uh, to just be on their A game. So, you know, Paul McBeth coming out here and putting up those consistent finishes really speaks to the level that he's always able to perform at. And it's impressive. It's two time Waco champion now. And there's not many of those. Yeah. You watch real good players be outside the top 70 at this event. I feel like, I mean, 
someone always has a bad weekend when you're out on the out on the road, but it's usually not the extended list of players that Waco kind of creates. I will say the best players usually rise to the top still. If you look at you know the top ten, you've got Macbeth, Dickerson, Nico, defending champion, James and Ricky were just outside the top ten. Um, but then you have some guys that, you know, you're Joel Freemans and Thomas Gilberts and Chris Clements who are really good touring professionals um, that will put themselves in it to win a few tournaments a year and really be, um, you know, people that are competing and grinding it out. But then you have guys that are a little less known. Um, Luke Humphreys obviously has had a crazy start to the year. Isaac Robinson up there in the top 10. Alex Russell with a couple good rounds. I know his game's been coming around. Uh, Charles Moore, guys that aren't necessarily ones that you anticipate being in contention to win, um, but it's Waco, and you have a good weekend, and you're being accurate, and that's all that matters. Yeah, absolutely. And before we jump over to FPL, I just want to get – I was looking at hole 18 of the final round, hole scores, um, and there was only one two in that headwind. But not only that, I don't – I mean, you you can't play this stretch of holes – better in good conditions much less the bad conditions that they set up for the final day kevin jones ended his round going two three two so eagle birdie birdie on 16 17 18 he was the only person to birdie 18 but the eagle on 16 i think he's let's i can look at stats here he was inside the circle they have him in from 27 and then uh another 27 footer on hole 17 to get that birdie he jumped up 17 spots the final day and that last little finishing stretch definitely played a role in that wow that's impressive yeah absolutely to be four and apart through those three holes i mean you expect to birdie 16 in those conditions and 17 is not impossible but like you said he's the only one to birdie hole 18 even if you got on the green on 18 like the wind was still blowing 25 miles an hour and you still had to make a putt where if you miss it goes into the water every time yeah, it. I mean, there's not much room to be short on that basket, so that's the only place you're going to have a headwind. So you're probably going to have a tailwind putt, like looking back right with the water behind it. Uh, yeah, I, insane. I. It's hard to comprehend that. We you know, obviously saw that and played in that condition, so we know what it's like, but hats off to Kevin. That's a sick finish down the stretch. Yeah, let's jump over to FPO real quick. Um, in a tournament that looked like it was a runaway, for a long time, um, and then got a little closer towards the end of the um, end of the second round, and then really things changed in the third round. But Evelina Solanen coming out with a hot 10-14 round in round one was leading by four over Page, and then Owen and Valerie uh, were five shots back, and we were watching live coverage from the house because we were teeing off so much later and Evelina was in cruise control through the front 10 or 11 holes of round number two. And it was killing it. And we were just like, Oh, this is the Evelina we've kind of been waiting for. Um, we know that throwing the disc is definitely her strength, but then coming down the stretch of round two, she goes birdie on 10 double on 11 par on 12 birdie, birdie double on 15 birdie on 16, triple on 17, and then birdie on 18. So the scorecard started going really up and down. And it kind of let Valerie and Owen back into it. And then a number of players, well, three players, Kristen Tatar, Macy Val, uh, Vela Diaz, and Paige Pierce, 
all were also under par. So, I mean, realistically, going into that last day, you still had six or seven players that could have come up and won this tournament in FPO. Yeah, and I'm just looking, again, I'm lo- I love stats, and I'm looking at this now. Evelina, round one. This is probably, it's, I mean, this has got to be. There's no way this is not. The first time ever someone was 0% circle 1x putting and 0% circle 2 putting and leading the tournament. Wow. Every single putt, I mean, maybe the Udis scorekeeper messed something up. I'm going to have to go back and watch coverage because I want to see this. But according to this, she every single putt she took was in the bullseye. She tapped in every single putt. Wow. She missed a couple. She missed a couple in circle one X. Like she's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven misses, I think. So like she missed some circle one putts. Only two of those resulted in bogeys. But besides that, she was just driving the disc so well. 80% fairway hit, which, you know, would probably lead MPO fairway hits. Um, and then a hundred percent scramble, like, she was throwing the disc like probably no one else has in a long time in FBO. Yeah, but that's yeah nuts. If that stat is true and the UDISC person knew what they were doing, that is incredible. We go into round three because that's where the money is made, and all of a sudden things changed and they changed real quick. Evelina went from being four under par to having a lead to going double, single, par, double in her first four holes and the tides changed real quick. Yeah. Lots of players got under par quickly. Kristen Tatar started off her front nine hot at three under through that Katrina Allen, even hotter six under through nine. Like that is a scorching hot start. Um, even though cat merch started off hole one with the triple bogey, she still carded, uh, seven birdies on the next eight holes to just bring it back into that mix. Hannah Bloomer's clean front nine. Like, I mean, Evelina was struggling with putting. You can see that by the stats. But, you know, you have four or five players that all of a sudden are right on your heels or have passed you. You know, you're not sitting in the driver's seat like you started the round being having a few-stroke lead. Yeah, and honestly was almost out of it through nine holes because she went par, 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 and then a double on hole nine. And all of a sudden, it's seven over par through nine holes. And it's like at that point, her tournament's over. And a lot of it was maybe confidence. A lot of it was maybe putting. And a lot of it was, you know, some of it's just not having it on a day where you came in with a lot of pressure. And we've all been in that situation if you're trying to play at the top where you're playing really well, playing really well. And then sometimes either you just don't have it or the moment gets a little too big for you. The one that it wasn't too big for this day who pulled away late was Valerie Mandajuno. Mandawano. Mandawano. Um, so she, I mean, we watched this live down the stretch and like, you know, amazing stretch, composed golf. Um, Kristen Tatar was right on her heels. She was a few back going into the last four holes. Kristen birdied 15, birdied 16, where Valerie took part. She laid up a putt on 16 from 60 plus feet on the elevated basket, not to get it too aggressive on anything. Came up to hole 17, threw her drive to absolute primo position. If I could choose to drop there for every round I play, I absolutely would. You know, like that is where everyone's trying to land. Kristen Tatar, a little bit out of position, had to force, or she had to lay up, 
and ended up going out of bounds on her layup. So all Valerie needed to do was just put it in play with Kristen two back on 17. And Valerie went for the basket, throwing the backhand, which is fading towards the water, in the less than ideal, absolutely less than ideal wind conditions, and put it like right under the basket. Absolutely clutched up. Didn't see the pressure, it seems like, and just executed down the stretch and played really clean golf to take down the win by four and win her first Elite Series event and Disc Golf Pro Tour event. Yeah, congratulations to Valerie. Super cool to watch on live coverage. I know we were tuned in pretty closely to it before we went to the course that day. So congratulations, Valerie, on Elite Series win number one with um, probably more to come. It leads us into a pretty easy transition because we talked about scoring conditions and we talked about weather. One of the things in the Northwest we have to do up here is play in bad weather, but that was pretty brutal that first day. And I would say even the third day, that wind was strong. It was 20 to 30 miles an hour at a time. It was really impacting everything that you were doing. My three bad weather conditions, the things that I care about, rain, wind, and cold. Obviously, it can get extremely hot in the summertime, and maybe that affects some things. But rain, wind, and cold, what do you hate playing in the most? What can you deal with? What do you think affects your score the most? If I had to choose those three, like, conditions of, like, I'm okay with, like, I can't do this one. I can live with this one, and I'll take this one to have to deal with. I would say I don't want to play in the wind. I struggle a lot in the wind. Um, I can deal with the rain and then give me the cold. I don't care. Like temperature wise to me, not super critical. I like dry conditions. Obviously if it, you know, if it's raining, it's raining. It is what it is, but I will prefer to never play in the wind. If I never have to like DDO kind of winds, what we just saw in Texas. No, thanks pass. I'll see you at the next event. If I could, um, but they're all things that you're going to come across, and they're all things you're going to have to uh, deal with. I think for me, I'll deal with the cold. It's fine. Like I don't really want it to be under 30 degrees. That's when I start to be like, this sucks, or I would say even under 35 degrees. But if we have a morning where it's starting out at like 35 and you know it's going to warm up a little, I'm fine with that. I So it's it's I guess it's twofold. I don't have a problem throwing the disc in the rain or in the wind. I mean, but I'm not a very good wind putter and it can get in my head. And I think you saw it walking with me in that last round. It was just enough wind for me to not have a ton of confidence putting. And it definitely impacted my score. Um, but if it's going to be sustained bad all day, I would still rather be dry, I guess, than I would just wet and miserable I can deal with rain for like half an hour, an hour during a round, or a little bit on and off where you can keep your stuff dry and your bag dry and the umbrella's doing good. But how do you prepare for a round where you know maybe – so wind is your least favorite. How do you prepare for a round where you know it's going to be windy like that? Uh, for me, windy, like I – there's not much probably that changes like actually what's – you know, I'm bringing to the course preparation wise, you know, maybe I'm putting in one more extra, like extra over stable distance driver. If I come across, you know, like the most terrible headwind you could ever imagine. But 
nothing much there is changing. More of my approach on the course, like what I'm playing for, where I'm choosing to attack, is definitely what's changing in those kind of conditions. Um, obviously, like, you know, wind can be like Emporia kind of wind where it's still 70 degrees. It's just ripping wind. Or we can have what we had in Texas this week where it's cold, very cold and extremely windy where, you know, you need layers, you need hand warmers, you need all the extra accessories to help uh, be ready for that round. But uh, for me, wind, it's more just game plan on the course. Sure. When you're going to be aggressive, when you're not going to be aggressive. I don't, like I said, I don't mind throwing the disc in the wind. It doesn't bother me. I carry overstable enough discs, but I think one thing that the listeners could probably get something out of when it does get super windy like that, and we don't have it a ton in the Northwest, but if you're listening from other parts of the country and you deal with wind, I think it's simplify your game plan. Know what you can do. Don't press when it's not necessary. And understand, especially around the greens and approach areas, you're going to have to probably have some versatile abilities to throw different upshots, whether it's forehand, backhand. There was one point, where I was throwing a Z extreme from like 70 feet because it was so windy. I didn't know what else I could do. Like you have to have those overstable discs in your bag. And I would say almost all the time for me, even if I'm with the wind, I'm probably going to choose the more overstable discs just to keep it simple. And if it needs to be a hyzer, I'm throwing a hyzer like forehand or backhand. I'm trying not to flex stuff. I'm trying to keep it low if I can. But if you have a crosswind right to left or left to right, I'm almost always going to throw the shot that goes against the direction that the wind's going. So if the wind's blowing from left to right, I'm going to throw the backhand hyzer that goes into the wind. And if the wind's blowing from right to left, I'm going to throw the forehand that goes into the wind. Because the last thing I want to do is put the flight plate up on a hyzer with a right to left wind and have it blow at 40 or 50 feet left of where I intend it to go. So it's always just kind of knowing like what the angles are with that. And into a headwind, just go way more overstable. If you're more comfortable with throwing something overstable forehand, then do that. Backhand, do that. I had one putt on a hole that I took a double on, which was terrible, hole 13 in the first round, where I was like 60 feet out, and I tried to just throw a little spinning Luna putt up there to lay up. And it was so windy that it blew it like 25 feet right of the basket, and it looked like I was trying to throw an anti putt and it was just super ugly. Those are the situations where I struggle a little with the wind is the touch shots around the green. Um, and then once the confidence goes a little, it becomes even tougher to spin the putter the way you want to. But yeah, I agree with you. It's a strategy thing in the wind like that. Be prepared. We were playing in cold weather, bring hand warmers or whatever. The rain is where you really need to carry some extra equipment And the biggest tip that I could give, since we're talking about playing in bad weather, and that's what we do most of the time up here in Oregon, go get yourself some good rain gear. I know it's expensive. I know it can be 120 or 150 bucks to go get a good rain jacket that's Gore-Tex. It's like you go to a golf store and buy one that you can move in that's actually going to keep you warm and waterproof, and then some waterproof pants too. Spend the money because you're never going to regret it. Those things last forever. You're not wearing them that often. If you go get good rain jackets, don't cheap on it. Don't go to the Columbia store and get something that says water resistant and it's like $35 on the clearance rack. Like, Know what you're getting. Be prepared for it. And then make sure you you have the umbrellas. You have the towels. You bring plenty of stuff with you because 
the worst thing you can do is get out there and not be prepared for rain. Yeah, absolutely. Cannot agree more with that. Like you said, I, I didn't know this as a former Californian now living in Oregon. When I first got up to Oregon, I very quickly learned when buying clothing what the difference in water resistant and waterproof was. Yeah. <laughs> um, like you said, I had some like, I'm like, oh, this is water resistant. This will be a nice jacket. Then you get actually out in like real rain and you're sitting there. Eventually the stuff is just, you know, seeping into your clothing and just ripping through it. And you're like, huh. Maybe this wasn't actually like what I should have got. I should have got the thing that's waterproof, where the water's just beating up and running right off your jacket. Yep. Um, so waterproof clothing is great. Um, carry an umbrella. I always do. Um, got a rain fly in my bag just to keep everything dry. And then the umbrella is kind of just to, you know, keep the water off of me when I'm standing up or I'm not throwing. And then also provides like a bit of a little mobile shelter for my bag when I need to, you know, set it down on the fairway, figure out which disc I'm getting, dry off, you know, my putter under that when I'm getting ready to putt. Um, so that for me, I always like also carry like whale sacks or birdie bags and stuff like that as well, just to keep my hands dry because I hate, I'm, I'm not like throwing the disc, not super picky with my grip. Putting the oh, disc, yeah. like it sucks. So you always want to be prepared, make sure you got the right grip on your discs. Um, but the like pro tip that I learned from a little bit of Oregon rain golf in the winter, um, like I said, towels, super clutch, bring more towels than you think you will ever need. You'd rather have more than not enough. What I like to do is I take those towels, I like roll them up into small little, like little, uh, I don't know, like, like basically about the size of your phone, but little like towel rolls. And I'll put two of those towels in, like, a sandwich, like, Ziploc bag. And I'll put, like, four little, like, Ziploc bag pouches with towels stuck okay. in them into the side pockets of my bag. So, one, if it's just raining, drenching you in water, and your bag's getting wet or whatever, you don't have a rain fly, whatever, the last thing you want to do is be, you know, keeping all these towels nice and dry in your bag, grabbing a new one every three holes, and then halfway through your round, oh, it's been raining so much, your bag's soaked, all your towels in your bag are soaked. Because then they're just useless. Yeah. So I always pack some towel. If I know it's going to be that kind of rain, like a rainy round, I'm putting towels in something waterproof in the bag and then just popping a new one out. And then people are looking at me like on the you know 12th hole and they're like, how do you still have dry towels? And I'm like, put them in bags, got them waterproof, keep them prepared. Yep. So yep. that's my like secret little, I mean, it's not like a secret little tip, but that's my little tip of, you know, come prepared and then make sure your stuff is uh, nice and protected for those rainy rounds. Yep. Too many towels is better than not enough waterproof clothing. And my last thing and something that I've am super picky about good waterproof Gore-Tex shoes. I wear Adidas Terex ones. I think that's probably the most common play. Um, you're starting to see idio shoes come out that I know Adam's wearing and Nate Sexton's wearing and some of the others that they say are waterproof. I have not worn them, so I don't know. I also don't know how they're going to hold up being brand new. Cost is one thing. I get it. If you're a casual player that's only playing in good weather, maybe you don't have to buy waterproof shoes. But in Oregon, realistically, we need them from the middle of September until like May. And then we get a few months where the ground's not wet. Or, you know, maybe the, maybe today if it's nice, I don't have to wear waterproof shoes or whatever. But it's not like it's so hot out here that waterproof shoes are going to hurt you. Your feet aren't going to be like crazy warm in them or whatever. Go spend the money to get Gore-Tex shoes. 
And when they're done being waterproof, get another pair. Because there's nothing more miserable than walking around with swampy feet all day because you didn't wear the right shoes or whatever. Like, if you want to keep that internal warmth, it starts from your feet and it goes up. Make sure that you have, even more so than waterproof pants, I would say. Obviously, a jacket's really important too. It starts with your feet. Keep them dry. That's like my tip number one. No matter what you're doing, good shoes. They keep your feet dry. And I really prefer the Adidas because I feel like the Continental bottoms on them, they use like a Continental rubber, like the tire company, on the bottom of their shoes. And it grips in all conditions, wet, slippery, like it doesn't matter. They're a huge game saver or a huge stroke saver when it comes to like traction on the tee. Most important thing in rain for me is having good shoes. Yeah, I can't agree more with that. Like I said, I like the Adidas shoes too. The traction's great. I'm never slipping on, you know, concrete, rubber, turf tee pads. You know, if it's super muddy ground with like standing water, that's like one thing. Yeah. But like I said, crucial to like, it's part of like the, you know, it's gripping the disc, whether it's your, you know, your feet gripping the ground, like maintaining those, uh, consistent things that you have in a normal condition round yep. if, are what you want to aim towards uh, prioritizing in those bad condition rounds. If you're tearing up shoes super fast, disc golf is not meant to be good on shoes. Like let's just think about the pivot you're doing. It's on concrete. You're going to tear shoes up eventually. If you're noticing that they're wearing out on like where your toe is somewhere other than the bottom of the shoe, it's probably a form issue more than it is a shoe issue, and you're dragging either your back foot, um, especially on forehands, pretty common for that right inside back toe to drag on the ground and rip shoes up. Maybe if you're noticing your shoes are blowing out all the time and not just on the bottom where the tread is, do a little video work, find out why you're dragging your foot and ruining shoes so fast, but spend the money on them. You know, I think we're both in agreement that cold weather, eh, whatever. I don't love playing in cold weather, but it doesn't really affect our scores. So, yeah, cold weather for me is easy. It's just wear layers that you can take off if it starts to warm up, or if you get cold, um, you can put them back on. So, layers and then hand warmers. Like the last thing, if you've never played in like really cold weather, like, I, you know, lucky you, you will throw discs when your hands are so cold and the discs are so rigid in like 30 degree weather that it will hurt coming out of your hands. So just get some hand warmers, get your hands warm. It's, you know, it's, in my opinion, like game changing for those cold, cold weather rounds, but much more simple to deal with than wind or rain, in my opinion. All right, let's move on. Last topic and a good one. Um, we have a lot of events coming up. I'm signed up for a ton of stuff. I know you have a few things on your schedule as well. We have been blessed in the Northwest, I would say, with uh, a good number of really, really organized tournament directors. I wanted to just touch today on what I think makes a good TD. And for people that are thinking about running their first tournament, maybe you can get a little bit out of this. I am always willing to help new TDs out. I have a checklist that I go through every event that I can easily send over to anyone that wants to start running events so they can see like, oh, these are the things that we need to do to be organized for events because the more you're organized beforehand, it gets so much easier to run events the day of. So um, do you have a list of things that you see in a good TD? Maybe we can go back and forth here. 
Yeah, let's go back and forth a little okay. bit. I think one of my, like, communication with the players, I think for me, is something that's huge, whether it's, like, transparency of, like, you know, where your entry fee and where your money is going. Or it's something like, you know, hey, this is what time the tea times are at. This is what time lunch is at. Just a full array of, you know, here's the OB rules. Here's where your money's going. Here's where just letting everyone know this is what's going on. I think that communication aspect to me is something that's I really look for and I really appreciate when a TD gives you all of that. Communication is number one for me. It's literally the top thing that I have on my list. One of the things that I've started doing for all our events is something that was a direct result of COVID not being able to have players meetings and it's sending all the information out via email and posting it on your event page on Facebook beforehand. A day or two before the event, everyone gets it in writing. It gets rid of the need to have completely pointless player meetings. I hate player meetings that are mandatory for people to go to because they end up being catered towards brand new players that don't know what they're doing that, you know, the, the other, let's say there's 80 people in a tournament and you've got 20 like recreational or brand new MA2 guys, the players meeting just ends up being catered towards that and not to the other 60 people that are there with relevant information about like what's going on. And they take a bunch of time and people don't listen. At least if I send an email to players or I get an email from a TD and it has all the information that's needed in it and the communication's good about starting time, about check-in, about whole assignments, about payouts, about course rules, uh, all that kind of stuff, it is my responsibility as a player then to go through everything that is formatted and sent to me to make sure that I know what's going on. And then if there's any other notes, I love when you go to check-in and TDs are like, do you have any questions? Is there anything we can clear up for you? And it's a one-on-one basis, so if you do have something, you can ask that real quick. But nine out of ten times, if TDs do a good job of communicating via email, there's no need to do a players' meeting. And also, like you said, some people don't listen to the players' meeting, but also some people just don't even go to the players' meeting. Yeah. And it's great to have all of that information, with like specifically whole rules, like the layout, like you know, schedule, how everything's going to operate at the tournament in that writing in email because if you don't get to the players meeting if you're running late for the tournament and maybe you're you know running out to your hole with three minutes before the two minute warning or you know before your tea time whatever it's good to just have all that information so you can always refer back to it and you don't have to sit there in the morning and you know warm up come back to hole one listen to the TD talk for 15 minutes okay now I'm gonna go walk back to hole number 10 like Communication, super critical. Again, I think that's my number one. Like you said, your number one too. Yeah, number – and they're not necessarily in any order after that. The, one of the uh, – the thing that I listed second was clear whole rules. Make sure that you have the course set up where everyone knows exactly how you intend them to play the whole. And for gosh sakes, make sure those follow PDGA rules. Yeah, I think that something for newer TDs very easily, especially like when you're running an event at your local course – it's very easy for you to go out there and be like, all right, yeah, normal whole B rules apply because you play there all the time. You know, there's like a standard general, you know, like ground rules that everyone plays with. You know, oh, anytime you cross a road, like road and over is out of bounds. Or, you know, if you're crossing water, maybe that's out of bounds as well. Like everyone, everyone's course has general rules, but there's times where there's, you know, a restricted area or something, a mandatory, something that might be in play for a tournament. 
that, you know, the local guys that just come out to league nights to play by the, the general rules don't know for that tournament. So clearly marking all of your out of bounds, super important. Ambiguous OB lines or improperly marked ones. One of my biggest pet peeves when I see a course and I'm playing a course, like if I just like, because half the time it's, you know, you're if you have a weird or ambiguous OB line and you're just like, well, you know, what's supposed to happen here? Like, is this supposed to be the out of bounds area? Is this like, what's going on? All right. Well, I guess the benefit's just going to go to the player because we don't understand this and we can't make it a group decision. You know, just have everything clearly done so there isn't all these weird situations. As a TD, you also don't want to spend your entire lunch break talking to everyone about the provisional that they had to play because they don't understand the rules or whatever you laid out. So, like you said, <laughs> rules that actually follow PDGA guidelines, clearly marked OB, and then just properly explaining all the whole OBs yep. rather than saying, you know, oh, normal course rules apply. In writing, not via players meeting by voice. It needs to be either... On the PDGA Live scoring page, because for most events we're using that now, or literally on the T sign, and it needs to match what's sent out in the player's guide, so it's sent twice, and it needs to be the exact same wording on both, so there is no questions. If you need to pull up the player's email, you can figure out exactly how it's worded, and your your pet peeve is 100% my pet peeve. If you don't have the time to fully put the out-of-bounds line in, don't put it in. If you're going to try to make a fake out-of-bounds area by putting flags out on the course, that thing better go from 50 feet behind wherever you think a player can throw it to 50 feet in front of wherever you think a player can throw it. If you've got a hole that's 300 feet and you want there to be an artificial out-of-bounds line on the left, that thing needs to go literally from the tee pad to 100 feet past the basket. Do not ever skimp on being like, oh, I'm 20 feet past the basket, I'm just going to paint an arrow with a line on it now and just say it's indefinitely... OB further than that because that does not help the players. You cannot paint a line with an arrow and then make players guess where they're supposed to actually take the OB from. It needs to be clearly defined. It needs to be clearly marked. And if you don't have the time to do that, don't make it out of bounds. Yeah. And also just to emphasize when you have areas where you might have concrete and grass getting very close to each other where there's not a curb or you know, you can't, the, the line's pretty blurry, like, oh, there's, you know, grass growing in the asphalt, whatever, paint the line. If you need to say, you know, from here to here, this is the one part where there's no curb that exists that marks the out-of-bounds line, paint that line, make sure it's very clear to the players, is this in or is this out? And as a TD, it's going to save you a ton of headaches at lunchtime or afterwards, like you said without players coming in with different questions, without players playing the whole different ways, and you have to figure out who did it right and wrong. Um, all right. Clear hole rules and knowing the PDGA, or playing by the PDGA rules on those holes was my number two. What is something else for you? Oh. I have more. Hit me with another one of okay. yours. Yeah, please. I have more. Um, I, I also obviously run a good number of events. I've learned the hard way on a lot of these topics. Um a well-marked course, and that means T signs, and that means next hole signs. So if you're playing a layout like Whistler's this weekend for Sows, it's 27 holes. We're playing an 18-hole layout because we're playing two rounds. You can't play two of 27 in a day out there. It would kill everybody. So we're playing two rounds of 18. And our, our good buddy Justin Jores is the tournament director, so I was on a phone call with him last night and a little bit this morning just giving him a list of things that I think we need to see, which is 
specific T signs for every hole that say like Sal's 2022, um, hole one, hole two, whatever. And then next T signs that point people in the direction that we want them to play a well-marked course. So players know exactly what they're supposed to do. And then a map with that kind of stuff, whatever for layout purposes, but make sure that the course is well-marked out. Um, I guess that's not a huge one, but it's something that really helps the tournament experience for players when they're not wandering around looking for the next T sign. Yeah, especially also if you're playing courses where there is maybe multiple tee pads. Like you said, you're playing a 27-hole course on an 18-hole layout. So making sure it's it's very clear you're not playing this uh, certain tee pad. Or you know maybe it's taking a trash bag and putting it over a basket so people don't people know not to play to that basket. Um, yeah. It somewhat goes in line with the, like we talked about OB markings, just being very clear. But like you said, clearly marked course. It's just all about providing this experience to the players at this point. Yeah. Um, a big one for me, and this kind of, we talked a little bit about like not doing players meetings and stuff before, having your tournament start on time. And that means not early and more importantly, not late. I would say almost flip. Well, flip yeah. <laughs> right. You can't, you can't, don't start early. But, like, do your best to make sure everything's running on time. Um, you know, I look at this example at the memorial every single oh year. I don't it's know right. why they don't change this every single year. Hole one at Fountain Hills does not take eight minutes to play. No, it takes 15. I don't like, – you have, if you have a super difficult starting hole, you know, don't make tee times ten, like eight to ten minutes. Make them, like, 15. Like, if you can't – Fit that like you know the number of players you want to on the course at one time either you know get your butt out there earlier start the tee times earlier decide maybe hey this division shouldn't play this hole or needs to play a different tee pad um to make this flow properly but just you know like you said it's just great to start on time you obviously can't start early um but there should also and i hate that this thing needs to be something that's said as well tee times like round start times whatever you can put that on the pdga website when you're making whole assignments or whatever put it on the pdga website like it's helpful when you send it out to all the players in an email but you can always put it on the pdga website yep. don't put it on disc golf scene and say like oh round two is going to be starting at one at no. 1 p.m no that's not where it goes Everything is on the PDGA website, and it lets you put it on the PDGA website. The PDGA website needs to be the one and the go-to source of all information on the tournament for a player. So we have shotgun starts, and we have tee time starts. Obviously, two very different things when it comes to keeping it on time. You were talking about tee time starts, so for your big events, that's what you're going to be doing most of the time. If, as a TD, you need to change someone's tee time, like the day before a tournament or whatever, or a few hours before a tournament... You better make sure that you have their phone number and you can get a hold of them to give them a heads up on what's going on. Don't change it the day before and make them tee off earlier because of travel plans and stuff. You know, do your due diligence. If someone drops out late, make sure that you have a plan in terms of how you're going to fill that spot or what you're going to do with it. So, and then I obviously agree with you. If hole one takes too long to play, like obviously adjust your tee times or whatever you need to do. More local events and regional events are going to have shotgun starts than they are tee times. For that, Mm -hmm. a key to me is 
set a schedule, send it in the player's email, and stick to that schedule. You don't need to set a round two tee time if it's a two-round and one-day tournament because you don't know what how long round one's going to take or whatever. But if you're saying that check-in is from 7.45 a.m. to 8.30 a.m., as a TD, you better be there at 7.45 a.m. to get people started checking in. And I'm okay with you being strict at 8.30 and saying, hey, that's when check-ins cut off. Now, you can't actually deny a player that has paid for that spot playing in the first round just because they didn't check in by 8.30. But if you do a good job and you are clear in your expectations and stuff, players are going to show up on time and they're going to get checked in. And then maybe you have one or two people to try to like call real quick and track down. But if you say we're teeing off at 9, we're teeing off at 9. Like It is a big thing to not have players standing at a hole for 20 minutes waiting on a random two-minute call that they don't know when is going to come. And then have a reasonable lunch break, an hour from the, la- the time the last card gets in. If you've got a card that has taken 30 minutes longer than anyone else to play the course, maybe you go to those guys or girls and say, hey, that took forever. We're going to try to adjust your groups a little bit and be – you know, figure out in the second round how to make it go quicker, you're going to get 45 minutes for lunch because everyone else has been sitting here for so long. You know, so maybe don't go mess around for a while. Go get your food, come back. We're going to give you an adequate amount of time to eat, but we also need to keep pace of play up for round two because of darkness or whatever, if it's in the wintertime. Just making sure that you set clear expectations about what the timelines are going to be, and as a tournament director, you stick to them, and like you said, post all those tee times on the PDGA site. Do not just throw them on disc golf scene or throw them up on a Facebook post and expect everyone to see it. Yeah. And like you said, you mentioned changing tee times. If don't you are a tournament director, do like local events, especially don't post tee times until the day before the event, yep. post them at like 5 PM, like local time the day before the event, you know, basically at a point where you're like, most likely no one else is going to drop out unless, you know, their car breaks down in the morning and they're not getting there. Like, basically, no one's going to be dropping out, you know, less than 12 hours before your event. That's when you should be like, all right, tee times are posted. And if you need to change a tee time, if you change it for the later, like if, you know, Scott was going to be teeing off at the first tee time at 8.30 a.m. on a threesome and someone dropped out and you're like, all right, I got to shift his him up to a later point in the day where there's now a foursome that he can play on because you can't play a twosome, send him an email preferably just call them and say hey your tier t time is changed when it's moving for the later if you need to change someone's t time earlier you need to call them you need to actually get in touch with that person whether it's you know maybe that you catch them out at a practice round tell them in person call them you cannot just assume that someone saw their email of hey you don't tee off at 12 30 anymore scott you actually tee off at 10 45 that person needs to know once their tea time is posted, if it has been changed. Right. For sure. So, um, yeah. Um, another little note that I put on here was just, uh, submit results as soon as you can after the event. It doesn't do you any good to take three days to turn the TD report in. The PDG has made it so much simpler. Now use PDG live scoring. It makes your life a thousand times easier as a TD. And as a player, don't be that guy that refuses to do live scoring. You're real. I mean, your tournament directors generally are doing this for free, or for very, very limited profit. I will say, if I don't know, I've never actually made any profit off of running an event. So outside of like the TD tips, yeah, some... that pay for me to like cover my entry fee or something. Just do the tournament directors a favor and use live scoring. Don't be the person that's still like, you don't have to. I want to use a paper scorecard because that's 
10 years ago. Like, we're past that. Use live scoring. It helps everything out. It helps the tournament go so much smoother. Lastly, and then we're going to get real quick before we bounce out of here to a, like one more short topic that I have. The tournament directors need to know the PDGA rules. In my opinion, the TDGA, the PDGA like rules test that or rules exam that tournament directors have to take is it gets a C grade at best in my book. I don't think it's great. I think they need to do more training for tournament directors. I think you need to pass more of a legitimate test than just like a rules test in terms of like knowing the tournament procedures and that kind of stuff too. Cause really that's just a rule book exam that they try to trick you on. It's kind of like I compare it to a DMV test when you're going down to take your permit test at 15 years old and they're trying to make the wording tricky. So it gets you or whatever. I don't think it's great. I know it's okay. And I, I think it should be, be in place still, but I know I've talked to the PDJ about implementing some training for tournament directors and they have put a tournament director hotline in place now that people can call it's a really, really corny commercial that they've been showing on like live coverage and stuff, but it is a new tool that's available for tournament directors. Yeah, so absolutely utilize that. But uh, like you said, uh, the certified officials exam is, you know, it's there. It's you're going to learn how to apply rules, but what you're more going to learn how to do is you're like, oh, here's a situation. Which rule do I apply first? Or, you know, what do I use in this situation? Because they try to find... Like, all right, here's this wacky situation where something that, like, is only going to happen, like, once maybe ever in your career as a disc golfer happens. You know, what rule do I apply? Like, where do, like, what situation is used here? It helps you, like, it, you go through the rules, but it's like, hey, does this rule overrule this rule, like, situation? And then there's also questions about match play and doubles and I can count the number of times I've played PDGA sanctioned match play or doubles on one hand. So it's not the most, you know, helpful for the regular TD who's running singles stroke play events, which are yeah. basically everything that for the most part we're playing is disc golfers. Yeah. Um, so I think like if I literally can summarize our entire section of yeah. what to do as a TD, it's just, preparation be prepared yep. you should not like without with find it without a lack of better words and don't half-ass this like player experience is the thing that's going to keep people coming back we know in oregon people who don't run good events there's no need for me to call any of them out and say who they are but we don't play their events like we play events by tds that run good events we know what to expect and, you know, maybe I see an event that I'm like, oh, I don't know a clue who that is. That's a good course. Go play that event. I'm like, that was terrible. They had no idea what they were doing. They, you know, are playing made up rules. Like this isn't, shouldn't be a PDJ sanctioned event. I don't know what's going on. Probably not going to play one of their events again. Yeah. And, and people Just do learn. I mean, be, we've all learned from experiences of things that we've done wrong as tournament directors that eventually help us become better TDs. But communication with the players i think is is number one for both of us know what the heck you're doing be ready to run a pdga tournament if that's what you're doing like if you you need to know the rules you're not going to know the whole rule book but you need to like the what you're talking about with the certified official exam it's going to teach you how to go look the rule up and that's good enough for the most part you need to have a base knowledge on what all the rules are but you don't have to know the ins and outs of every specific wording but you do need to know where to find it just in case you need a reference of rule book be on time make your whole rules clear, make the course clearly marked, 
make sure that you're setting players up to be successful. And when you do that, players are going to want to play your event and they're going to come back time after time after time. Yep. So, um, yeah, you covered it all there. Like all those things, you can literally take everything Scott just said and put be prepared like to communicate like preparation by communicating with the players be prepared on the course and everything's properly marked be prepared with you know knowing the rules and all the tournament reports set up on the pdj website before the event so then you literally just enter scores in and then all the finance information's already in there you just at the end of the event you just click and be like all right here's the payouts it's all done like the pdj does make it relatively easy to have everything in place to run an event you just need to take a little bit of time to prepare yourself yep and i'll leave it at yeah that. we've seen it from this goes from c tiers all the way up through pro tour events i had a question and a rule call in round one this weekend with the new crazy mando rule that they put in place and the three guys in my card and myself and you and everyone else around we didn't have a definite answer, so we had to play something both ways and go up and ask Ryan Draper, who was a tournament director afterwards, like, how in the world do we play this? Yeah, and didn't and he, have an answer, but he went and figured it out the next day. Thankfully for my scorecard, it didn't matter because I took a six either way. But, yeah, you don't want to be in that position where you don't know the answer, especially at a big event, when you've got touring professionals coming up to you and be like, dude, how do we play this? So just be prepared. Be yeah, prepared beforehand. Because what was – you didn't see this, but with that situation, you, we you know brought the situation to the TD. Didn't know. He's like, I'm going to go find out an answer. Like, I get that it's not pressing because you took the same yeah. score either way. I literally walked up the next day to see uh, one of my buddies. I can't remember who it was, but I walked up. I was like, hey, how'd the round go? I'm like, oh, good. We had this weird rules thing on this hole. And I was like, oh, what was it? Talked about, like, described the situation. I'm like, okay, Scott literally just did that yesterday. And they're like, well, yeah, he either took a four this way or he took a seven this way. And I was like, well, I hope it's this situation. Went and asked the TD, and he was like, well, I actually had this brought up yesterday. I'm glad I know the answer now. This is how you play it. And he was like, okay, cool. I got up and down and got my four there. Yeah. So, you know, be prepared. Know the rules. Like you said, there's that tournament director hotline or the, what is it, the event committee? Or, like, it's got a name now. But look it up on the PDJ website. They are a resource to you to benefit you. So utilize it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think we can kind of wrap it up on that note, unless you have anything else to go over. Obviously, we were driving for most of this week, so we didn't get the podcast out early in the week. But I'm going to get it posted up as soon as possible um, today. So look for another one in nine or ten days as we will throw a second podcast or our fourth podcast, I guess. Um, for the resistance this channel up we got some cool drops coming before that but unless jeff has anything else i think i'm good for the day as am i we'll see you all after the texas state championship all right everyone have a good one Stop recording quick time